If you've been uh, tracking us a couple weeks ago, I talked about a reluctant leader. I used the person Moses as an example of that. In that sermon a couple weeks ago, I talked about his opposite, what I called an assertive leader. And I dropped or mentioned David's name. If you're an assertive leader, you have a growth mindset. You're confident of your own abilities. You don't like conflict, but you're not afraid of it. You move toward it, not away from it. Um, you are determined, you're aggressive, you're decisive, and resilient. You typically envision the victory before you even compete. You have an, I got this. David is a boy. He's an assertive leader. It reminds me, or some of you do, of the Story I heard of a fellow who applied for a job and was promptly rejected. He refused to accept the rejection. So he wrote a letter of rejection, rejecting the rejection of the company that he wanted to hire him. It read, to whom it may concern. Thank you for your letter of last week. After careful consideration, I regret to inform you that I am unable to accept your refusal to offer me employment at this time. <laughs> this year, I've been particularly fortunate in receiving an unusually large number of rejection letters. And with such a varied and promising field of candidates, it is impossible for me to accept all refusals. So despite your company's outstanding qualifications and previous experience in rejecting applicants, I find that your rejection does not meet with my needs at this time. <laughs> Therefore, I will initiate employment with your firm immediately. <laughs> I look forward to working with you. Best of luck in, reject in rejecting future candidates. Sincerely, and he signed his name. Some of you are like Moses, some of you are like David, some of you are a mixture in between. You don't go after conflict, but the moment it has presented itself, you do not back down. It's like somebody flips a switch and you will attack it with everything you have. You're an assertive leader. You run your houses this way. You run your life this way. Your friends around you are often very much this way. The moment you get a position of authority, you take charge. You assume you were put there to lead and that's no problem. The problem for you is that your strengths will end up being your weakness. Unless you guard the heart. You have to take care of your heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of your heart. You will forget this the more fierce the battle and the further into it you go. 
The heart is the high tower of a person. It's the executive center of their entire personality. Out of your heart comes your thoughts, your dispositions, your inclinations, your actions, what you want, and the way you treat people. All flows from the center of your heart. You have to guard that. And you have to groom it and train it and then give it to the right thing. Are you with me? The first time we meet David, he is at a festival with his family. The king of Israel is Saul, and he's a lame duck. God has already declared that Saul's kingdom is going to end. What the prophet said to him was, had you obeyed, your kingdom would have endured forever. But because you have disobeyed, your kingdom will end. Now wait for it, for God is looking for someone after his own heart. That's what he said. So the prophet goes to the festival or the feast and the Lord has told him when the person comes in front of you that you're supposed to anoint as the next leader, I'll tell you, just wait. Jesse parades his sons in front of the prophet one by one starting with the eldest. He looks at the eldest son and the moment he stands in front of him, Jesse, the prophet says, this has got to be the guy. What he says is, surely the Lord's anointed stands in front of the Lord right here. And he's getting ready to anoint him when he hears a word from God say, do not anoint him. For the Lord does not judge on the outward appearance. The voice says is, man judges on the outward appearance but the Lord judges by the heart. So that's what I came to tell you. God is looking for people after his heart. Then and now. And so what God judges is not the outward appearance, but he always judges the heart. We are a society that judges the outward appearance. If it is large, if it is growing, if it is talented, if it is charismatic, if it is rich and powerful, we consider it successful. But God still judges the heart. If it is popular or trendy, if it can do the job, if it has the latest methods and techniques, we want to become like it, but God still judges the heart. If it is smart, if it is attractive or sexy, if it is bold, we follow it or hire it or elect it, or marry it, or like it on Facebook. But all the while, God still judges the heart. 
That's what I came to tell you. All of life is wired to distract you from the one thing God judges more than anything else. God is looking for people after his heart. For that's what he looks at. Is that you? You are not wired to know these things, nor am I. For the heart is what you would use to judge the heart. But the heart itself is flawed. Prophet Jeremiah says, it's, it's crooked, who can know it? Jesus says, you measure yourselves by what other people approve, but God looks at the heart. So, so you can't sit in church and say, what is the nature of my heart? Because you will always give yourself the benefit of the doubt. When my blood sugar goes low, the first thing you lose is your mind. Don't say it. Because <laughs> the only fuel the brain recognizes carbohydrates. It don't even eat fat or protein. It eats pure carbs. So when the sugar is low, the brain starts to shut down. So years ago when I started with diabetes, Lori and I had to develop a mechanism for assessing whether or not the sugar was low. You can't just ask a person with low blood sugar. It's like asking a guy who's drunk if he's had too much to drink. He'll always say no. So she would have to give me a problem. She would say, what's nine times eight minus six divided by two? And if I would go, 66, 33. She would say, good, let's go. But if I would say, now honey, that is a dumb question. <laughs> she would say, let's eat. I would say, there is nothing wrong. She learned after a while just to say, I'm sure you're right, honey. But just out of love, would you eat the candy bar? You, you understand when you go to assess your heart, the mechanism you would use is flawed. So you can't expect an objective appraisal of your own condition. There is only one way to figure this out. That is, you have to be in a situation that calls for the heart to surface itself, show itself. And when it does, then it becomes more apparent the condition of your heart. Sit in church and you will always overestimate it. But get in the field where stuff is happening and it will come to the surface before you can hide it. And that is the place to discern. Are you still with me? I believe life 
is wired to give us opportunities to see what's inside of our heart. But I believe we are wired to ignore most of them. So what I want to do is walk you through David's life. The whole thing in three scenes. Relax, it's going to hurry. And we didn't show all of them because it was not wise to ask children to act out David and Bathsheba. We thought that would raise questions for you at home. And then that would raise problems for us in the office. But I want to give you different scenes from David's life. In each one of these scenes, you may find yourself today or you'll find yourself in another one. And when you're in it, you're asking yourself, what does the heart call for and what is in my heart? Starting with Goliath. Every one of you will come to a time in your life when you enter a valley. And in that valley, you will fight your biggest giant. It does not matter how assertive you are or how strong you are as a person. You are not ready for Goliath. When you are in the valley facing the giant of your life, the thing called for in your heart will be courage. Courage comes easier for those of you who are assertive leaders. But remember, the thing you're not afraid of can still kill you. So it's here in the Valley of Elah that you get a glimpse of what might be in your heart. Is it courage or is it fear? Now to the story. Goliath, we know, is nine foot six inches tall. So you know about how tall that is. It's, you see the loop in the green up here? Yes or no? Okay. Right about the bottom of that loop is nine feet, six inches tall. When David first gets to the battlefront, he hears Goliath standing in the valley shouting at the Israelites. Pick one guy, send him out, we'll fight each other, and the winner wins the war. David looks around him, and all of his friends are running in fear. They're terrified. So he turns and says, you don't need to lose heart. I will go fight the giant. Now he's still behind the front lines. When Saul hears about this, he asks to meet with David. So David goes even further behind the front lines where the king is, and he has a conversation. And he says, king, you don't need to be afraid. Look at that guy. He's too big to miss. I'll get him. The king says to him, <laughs> you're an assertive leader. Dumb as you are bold, he says. Don't you understand? You are a boy. And he has been a fighting man since his youth. He's a man child. He kills people like you for fun. And David tells him this story. He says, sir, years ago I was in the field watching the sheep. And when I was, a lion came and he seized one of the sheep in his mouth. I took the club and I busted him with it. And when I did, the lion turned and jumped on me. So I grabbed him by the hair and I killed him with my own hands. 
Now, how many of you do that? And then when a bear came, I killed him too with my bare hands. Now, this is what he says. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion will deliver me from that giant. And when he hears it, the king says, I don't have any other options. Okay, you're up. Put on the armor. He puts his own armor on top of a boy. And David tries to walk around in Saul's armor. And when he tries... He takes it off and he says, I can't do this. This ain't like me. So he takes a sling, note to self. He takes the only thing he knows. The only thing he knows how to use. This is not some superhero magic. It is not some act from heaven. This is something with which he's become very familiar and he is deadly accurate, but it is not much against that. He takes that with five stones into the battle. And when he gets into the valley, Goliath is still shouting. He looks at him and he says, what am I, a dog? You come at me with sticks like this? I'm gonna cut off your head. And I believe as David walks into the valley, have you noticed how something gets bigger the close to it you get? You start getting closer within fighting range and you see how big that thing is. Holy cow. I went on the floor one time as a college student because the Lakers were in, was it Market Square Arena? Some of you, yeah. I went to watch the Pacers play the Lakers and Kareem Jabbar was on the floor and I thought, I'm gonna go get an autograph. And, I, and no one stopped me. Things have changed. I ran down to the floor and I stood next to Kareem Jabbar insisting on an autograph. Now I'm six foot five and he was seven foot four. Not quite a foot taller than I was. But I promise you that extra foot matters. You're next to a seven foot four dude. He's bigger than life. Now add two more feet on top of that. With a boy half my size. That's a lot of nerve. A few observations from scene one may help you if you're an assertive leader. One, courage is a learned behavior. Nobody's born ready to fight that. If you want to fight that in public, you got to kill your lion and your bear in private. You got to take on things early in life that are threatening, but not that threatening, or you will not be ready for that day. You can sit in church and say, if the fight presents itself, you'll be ready, but you know if you have fainted at one instance after another up to this day, you are not yet ready for that fight. So you learn courage in smaller things by taking chances and risks when you're young. You calculate them, but you take them. 
or you will not be ready. Observation number two. If you're an assertive leader, you will have a lot of confidence. But confidence is easily misplaced. You will begin by having confidence in God, and before the battle is over, you will shift it to Saul's armor. Let me say it in plain language. You will come to believe that the reason you can do something is because of your talent, your experience, your degrees, your body of work, That's Saul's armor, man. That may help you in the minor leagues. But that is no match for Goliath. Third observation. When you fight your Goliath, be careful to remember what you're fighting for, you'll start losing focus partway in the conflict. You'll you'll start out with noble intentions. I'm fighting for the Lord, but before the battle's over, you'll be fighting for your own reputation. You'll be fighting for some cause that the Lord may have, but it is not the Lord. Watch it because it is easily hijacked. What David said was in the valley, he said, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and then all of the world will know that the God of Israel is alive. So you ask yourself, if I win this battle, what will all the world know? If I win this battle, they'll know I was right. (laughs) They'll know we're the best. If I win this battle, then my father will have to admit. Really? Are you still fighting for that? Come on, man. There are bigger things. Are you still with me? Somewhere on the wall of an oncologist's office, there's a sign. He walks past the sign. Every day he goes into surgery to fight, to do battle against cancer. On the wall is a surgeon's creed. I read it about 30 years ago as a young minister. I've tried to memorize it. It goes like this. My orders are to fight. And if I bleed or fail or win with might, what matters it? God only doth prevail. The servant craveth not except to serve with might. I was not called to win or lose. My orders are to fight. Somewhere in the valley, you will be tempted to run. You must fight. How are we doing? 
We still alive? We're good. Scene two. There will come a time in your life when you will leave a valley and go into a cave. And when you are in the cave, you will be within arm's reach of a leader who is incompetent. And they don't know what they're doing. And the question you must ask of your heart in the cave is, are you loyal or are you disloyal? You don't know sitting here. You only know when you're in the cave. Here's the story quickly. What happens after David kills Goliath is there's a huge parade in the streets and the people are lined up and they're chanting, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And when he hears it, Saul gets jealous and he starts thinking, they're only crediting me with killing thousands but they credit David with killing tens of thousands. If I let this go, pretty soon he's going to have my whole kingdom. Have you ever worked for somebody like that? Somebody who is threatened by somebody else's success? You ever worked under someone who didn't know what they were doing? None of my staff better talk at this time. <laughs> And you don't know what to say because you got a better idea, but you don't know if it'll get you killed because the more you follow this person, the more unstable they seem. David is inside of Saul's house one time and he's playing a harp. And at a moment like this, Saul's jealousy gets the best of him, so he grabs a spear and he chucks it at David. David ducks out of the way. The spear sticks into the wall David thinks to himself, this might be a good time to leave. So he waits till night and he slips out of the palace and he starts running in the fields. Now, Dave, now Saul's son, Jonathan, is David's best friend. When Saul finds out about this, he gets even more mad. So Jonathan confronts his father and said, Dad, what's this guy ever done to you except good? Why do you want to kill someone who has nothing but good in his heart? And when he says it, Saul gets angry at his son and takes the javelin and chucks it at his son. And his son gets out of the way, gets up from the table and leaves the room angry. From this moment on in the story, we have a boy that is running from a king whose life he has saved. And the king is in hot pursuit. He has a posse of men that he's brought around him and they're going to hunt David down. And when they find him, they'll kill him. David goes into a cave one night in the desert. He's way back in the deep of the cave. When at night he hears a noise, he crawls to the front of the cave and looks and who should come into the cave but Saul himself, the crazy king. 
He lays down with his men to take a nap. David sneaks out. Now see, Moses would be making a door out the other side of the cave. David sneaks out and cuts a piece of robe off of Saul. Then he goes back into the cave, gets his men and says, let's get out of here. They leave the cave, they go across a short canyon and then he shouts out to Saul from a distance when he's safe. And he starts crying Saul's name and when Saul wakes up and looks across the canyon, he sees David standing there. And that's when David holds up the piece of garment that he cut from Saul. And it becomes apparent at that moment that David's intentions are pure. There will come a time when you're in a cave and the incompetent leader in front of you will present themselves in plain shot and you will think to yourself, I can kill him. With a single shot, I can take his career. I'll go on Facebook. I'll write things. I'll just start spreading bad reputation. And I'll let nature run its course. Here in the cave, your heart is being tested. Are you loyal? Or are you disloyal? few notes to self if you're an assertive leader. One, authority is given more than earned. Remember that. If you're smart, talented, powerful, you tend to associate authority with competence. I follow them because they deserve to be followed. What you forget is that you follow people for what God has done, not what they are doing, and for what is in you, not what is in them. Some of you this morning serve people like this and you've been sabotaging undermining rolling your eyes correcting people's information when it starts to make that other person's soul look better second note sometimes your greatest weapon in battle is the power you don't use. It's what you don't do. And everyone knows you could do. But you restrain yourself from doing it. That proves your innocence. Some of you believe this morning if your cause is right, or if your arguments are right, or if you're not breaking any rules, 
then your heart is right. I tell you this morning, you can have the right cause and the wrong heart. You can have the best argument and still be wrong in your spirit if you undermine people God has anointed. Even if you don't know why he did it, he did it. And only God can take them out. Third, then we'll be done. In the third scene, David is not a boy. David is king. And at a time when all kings go off to war, David decides to stay home. He's walking on the roof of his house when he looks over and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. Calls his servants in and says, find out who that is. They come back and say, that is Uriah's wife. Uriah's on the front line of the battle. David says, bring her into my place. He spends the night with her. She sends word back and says to the king, I'm pregnant. David decides we have to take care of this. So he calls Uriah, the husband, back into the room and he says, why don't you go home and spend a couple nights with your wife? Thinks he can cover up the pregnancy by making Uriah think it's his. Uriah refuses to do it. He sleeps at the king's door. He won't even go home. And when David wakes up and finds him still at his door, he says, then you need to get back to battle. And he says to his commander, put him in the front line and make sure he gets killed. The plan works perfectly. Uriah goes into battle. Uriah is killed. David moves Bathsheba in, comforts the wife, and then takes her as his own. It worked perfect until a prophet showed up. Dadgum prophets. The prophet walks up to David and he says to him, your honor, your majesty, I have a story to tell you. There was a rich guy and a poor guy living in the same village. The rich guy had several sheep. The poor guy had one. One night, the rich guy went across the boundaries and he stole the only sheep that the poor guy had and used it for himself. What do you think should be done to the man? David is incensed when he hears the story. He said, that man does not deserve to live. You make sure he pays back four times what he did to that poor man. That's when the prophet says, you, sir, are the man. And this is what the God of Israel says. There will come a time in your life if you are an assertive leader where you will blow it Big time. If you're aggressive and strong and successful, you will still blow it. Now listen to me, please. People are afraid of you because they work for you. They're beholden to you. 
You're stronger than they are. And your tendency is to think if you can overpower them, you don't have to listen to them. This happens all the time in my house. I'm good with words. And there will come times when my wife will say, you are wrong and you need to stop that. And I will go on a verbal self-defense that would make a lawyer envious. (laughs) And one day she said to me, the reason I stopped talking is because I can't beat you with words. But honey, I'm still right. Mm. If you are a powerful person, few notes to self. Number one, make sure you always have a prophet somewhere nearby. Let me say that in slow motion. You make sure you have a prophet somewhere on your schedule. You don't have to hire him. You don't even have to like him. But you have to listen to him or you will become pragmatic. Chasing your dreams in the name of cause. You make sure there is a prophet somewhere on your board. Somewhere within arm's reach, and you have to listen to them. Prophets are people who feel the passion of God. Whether anger or longing or pain, and when they feel it, they seek an audience. They have their eyes tuned on what is happening, but they have their ears tuned on what God is saying. And whenever there's a discrepancy between what God is saying and what is happening, the prophet has to speak. And you can kill him if you want, but he's still right. If you're powerful and you ignore a prophet... Nobody can make you do anything. But God can make you wish you had. Later on. You keep one within arm's reach. And when they talk, you'll defend yourself and you'll say that ain't all with the... And it's probably true. Probably they always talk more than they should. I get that. But somewhere you'll have to discern what is the voice of God in this. And second, when the prophet speaks to you in that moment, remember, you are no longer in control. Your tendency when the prophet outs your sin is to sit and declare, because it's what leaders do. They declare exactly what's going to happen from this point on. Now, let me tell you how my repentance is going to work. Nathan said, you're the man, and this 
is what the God of Israel says. That's how, sir, it's going to work. Submit. What does David do? He retreats for more than a week. He goes into a back room and he breaks down. This is shocking. The man who went into the valley of Elah, who looked at a guy that big and never saw a risk he didn't like. A man with a heart that tall finds in a closet he is no match for the demons in his own heart. And it breaks him. He writes a psalm. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your, like I said, to your covenant love. For my sin is always before me. He wrote, I was conceived in sin. In sin my mother bore me. And my sin is before your plain eyes. Watch what he says next. Cleanse me and I will be clean. Purge me and I will become whiter than snow. Somewhere in the room this morning is an assertive leader in a situation like this. Your sin has become evident. Your defenses have started to rise. You can win the argument, but if you do, you'll lose. It is better for you to retreat and do business with God in private, to repent, to humble yourself. And if you do, mm, your cleansing can begin. If you don't, you'll be hiding from this for the rest of your life. But if you do, then your cleansing and your day can begin again. Would you bow your heads? I've given you three situations this morning. One in a valley with a giant who is too big for you. And I've called for you to summon your courage. Two in a cave behind or under a leader you believe is incompetent. And I've called for you to summon your loyalty. And three, in a room, an office, an altar, where a prophet has called you out. And I've called for you to summon humility. My friend, do not do what your heart wants to do. Do what it must and protect it. Preserve it. Groom it. Train it. For the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart.